Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by Daniel Foch. And today, to start things off, we're going to take a little trip down memory lane, you and I, Dan, a little bit of nostalgia. Do you remember university? Honestly, do I? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> well, that might be other reasons, but uh, you know, it feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Those all-night study sessions for finals, the all-night partying, which is maybe one of the I reasons we don't remember. <laughs> the meal plan. You and I both went to Guelph, which had the best meal plan in Ontario at the time, and Man, did I take advantage of that. Uh, and the true lack of responsibility other than to just get your your work done. You know, those were simple times. Are those, Is that what they mean when they say the good old days? It's funny because we're sitting in the studio here and we both just had to take extra strength Advil for back pain. So I think <laughs> I think we are. Um, those were the good old days. Yeah, so I think we're at that point in our life where there are good old days. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly was. Um it it's uh it's funny my my university career trajectory sort of actually launched me into being a landlord as well because I got kicked out of residence. Does it sound like you? Yeah. I'm I'm actually I used to be a bit of a bad boy. Oh yeah. I'm a very good boy now. But um reformed. The and and so I uh so you know, I kind of pitched doing a student rental with my dad and here we are talking about student rentals. So Anyway, they university may be the good old days. It may be. And we were both lucky enough to have great post-secondary uh, experience. But sadly, not the case for many people these days. It's a, obviously a very topical thing. There's been two policies kind of happening, which we're going to talk a lot about in today's episode, but two pol big policy changes taking place that that are designed to kind of fix that problem that's mm -hmm. happening in the Canadian economy right now. So especially for those international students. Yeah. I mean, one of the things students need when they attend universities is a place to live. It's kind of something you always need, regardless of who you are, where you are, what you're doing. Now, it used to be common practice for most first years to live in residence, which are, which are likely on or very near to campus, usually in kind of a larger, what would look like almost a mid-rise building made up of dorm rooms. Yeah, and then second year and the remainder of the time you're in school. It wasn't South, right? Were you in South? I was in South, yeah. yeah. South, South, which is if this is a totally University of Guelph thing, but South is designed like a prison, right? Well, they were designed by a Russian architect who had been known to, he got famous for designing prisons, and he designed these residences in a way that- They were riot-proof? They, yeah, essentially you couldn't congregate more than like 20 people or 15 or 20 people. So it was these weird, brutalistic, concrete well, things. And I lived well, in the Well, there's like so many staircases. That yeah, it was all just like, like towers that. and staircases. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, my brother lived in uh, in in the basement of South, actually. Yeah, and, it's not, um, not fun. I was in, in Valley, too. Nice. That's Mountain. Yeah. Clo super close to everything. Yeah. Anyway, before we alienate ourselves from the rest of the audience, <laughs> yeah. we love and respect all post-secondary institutions in Canada, except the ones doing the bad stuff that we're mentioning in this episode. But yeah, I mean, second year... You, you know, you're typically you and your friends would get a house, a rooming house. You'd be become roommates. You know, you'd live in a large four or five bedroom home 
everyone would kind of split up the rent. The landlord would probably be making a premium on what they would get renting it to, you know, a family or something like that. And these houses have multiple more bedrooms than your standard house or end user. And I think we're starting to get to the point where it's maybe too many <laughs> bedrooms. Like I think that there was this Patrick Brown just came out. Did you see this? There's no. like 23 students living oh, in the basement. Oh, no, 25. 25, 25 I did see that. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like that is yeah, that's so, insane. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you are seeing, you know, uh, student rentals have been a great investment vehicle for a long time. And and that made it made a lot of sense because all you had to do was buy a three or four or even maybe a five bedroom house, find, you know, where the windows made sense. You could add a closet and slap up some drywall, add another room or two. I mean, I've seen student rentals that have, you know, easily more than eight bedrooms and sometime in old massive Victorian houses that that can be fine, but you don't even need that many bedrooms because you're charging by the room instead of for the whole house. So it's a way to get a bit more of a return on uh, on that piece of property. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually my first investment it was a student rental house where I lived as one of the students. It was a it was a great investment. It was definitely there was definitely problems. Students as tenants, um well I mean we circle back to the partying and all that stuff. And, yeah. And in a lot of cases they were my friends who and I also lived with them. And so mm. it really taught me a lot about that whole experience of the relationship management. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like kind of being I don't know, like that, you know, trying to have like a friendship role while also balancing, yeah. trying not to get your assets destroyed. You have to, yeah, same thing you have to do with with like house hacking and stuff. And I mean, you're right, Dan, they they totally are great investments. They actually, again, have been one of the better performing asset classes, especially within the kind of small cap real estate investing world. Again, you do simple renovations, add another bedroom and, and drastically increase your ROI or your cap rate. And, you know, I don't have any student rentals myself, but I've worked with a lot of clients over the years, helping them secure student rentals and have kind of worked my way into that community. And, you know, you're getting between seven and $1,200 a room in some cases. That's serious money. Yeah, I know it is wild. And then I think there are challenges, you know, other challenges that come with tenants and financing some of these things. So, you know, we talk about this I think we've done it done it before, but like, you know, you'll often see if there's like 10 or five different leases, lenders typically won't like that because no, they consider they it a rooming like house that. and they don't want it to be a rooming house. And yeah. so you need to unify the the lease to yeah. make it more concrete for them. There are other lenders who will play with that with that space, but typically they want and it's not that like they don't they don't really care that it's a a rooming house per se. It's the volatility and risk of like one bedroom leaving and the the difficulty for you to fill it. Whereas if it's a unified lease and they come together, go together, which most student rentals do tend to be like few, few landlords are renting on a per bedroom basis. I think like it's usually you get a group of students who yes and decide no. to do that. A bit of both. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it is starting while, for sure yeah. as you're starting. I think with yeah. the international student thing taking place where people move here and they and don't there's, have there's maybe not that aggregator well, they don't, of, yeah. that, you know yeah. they don't already have a group a group of friends right yeah. and they're not going or, to or residence s- in year one exactly yeah because they're going to a strip mall college that doesn't have a residence is the big problem yeah honest. but anyway i yeah. digress we'll get to it <laughs> yeah so you know although it is part of this episode it's not entirely what we're going to be talking about today which is sort of the the student rental investment piece of it. Yeah, that definitely deserves a, an episode and, and we've I think we've been toying with yeah. one of those a full deep dive yeah. into it for a while and I think now's the time because this episode can kind of act as a bit of a foundation for you know, more of the investment thesis around them. Yeah, and I th- I think like now now you've realized the risk like you know in the course we have this like continuum of like what's risk 
what like what what investment falls in which risk category and i and i never would have ranked student rentals as a high risk category but it's super obviously we've just realized the legislative risk like based on what we're going to be describing today 50 your market your tenant pool just got capped by 50 percent by, by a policy yeah. overnight right well i mean and look we've seen policies have both very positive impacts such as MLI and the removal of HST and that kind of stuff. We've also seen them have devastating effects on certain markets like Airbnb and now potentially student rentals, right? So that's what we're here to talk about today is is the kind of student rental crisis that we're seeing. Now, there has been a massive amount of new students that have come to Canada to learn and they have gotten burned instead, specifically with a focus on the housing aspect of that experience. For sure. Yeah. So the number of international students at Ontario universities nearly doubled from 2014-15 school year to the 2021-2022 school year. And more than tripled at colleges. The majority of institutions built no new student residence spaces during that that same period of time. And we'll go to we'll go through the numbers of the how numbers substantially are, some of them have grown. It is it is astounding. Yeah. But you know, I think it's it's just really worth paying attention to. And it is fascinating from a purely political perspective because, and I'm surprised actually that the federal government hasn't pointed the finger more at the provincial government. It seems like the politi- politically expedient thing to do because there's this thing that I, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the way that the student before the cap, the way that the um, international student program worked was that if a college issued a student or issued a, to, or accepted an enrollment, sorry, enrolled somebody in school, they were issued a temporary uh, or a student visa right away. And so that obviously created this huge thing that we're describing where Ontario, because Ontario now is 51% of all the students in Canada, international students in Canada, and a huge article. So anyway, or a huge, uh, huge increase. So let's look at this article. Post-secondary schools must guarantee housing for international students according to the province of Ontario now. So Ontario colleges and universities will be required to guarantee housing for incoming international students. It does say incoming international students, so it's not like... It's not existing. Yeah. Right, because existing, that would be, okay, you know, now we got to go build another 500,000 yeah. houses immediately. Yeah, and there could also be, like, uh, as soon as I saw this, I was like, they, they chose the word guarantee, not provide, very carefully, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like they're expecting the colleges to own a bunch of houses yet. So so they're this could actually create... to have vehicles to mm-hmm. get to that housing. Yeah, and so this could actually create an opportunity for those student rental investors. And probably if we're starting to see kind of the sunset on that investment class, I would, I would be approaching the universities or colleges and saying, Hey, I have, this is already housing for five students. You know, they're going to turn over in a year, two years, four years. Do you want the place or do you want to rent it off of me and sublet it? So that might, that's the logical place. I've literally emailed every Ontario college president to ask them if they want it because it it just makes sense and yeah. i like brokering deals I yeah. like it, it's it, that's a that's a good one so <laughs> anyway the government will also review post-secondary institutions with a sizable number of international students and introduce a moratorium on new public college and private institution partnership jill dunlop said so the announcement comes days after the federal government announced a cap on study permits for inter- international undergrad students over the next two years which you're about to describe it. Yeah, Federal Immigration Minister Mark Miller announced a 35% reduction in the number of study permits this year. So, and that, that number is 50% in Ontario. They were yeah, so 50%. substantial amount across the country and, and literally cut in half, cut the new visas in half for Ontario. And the move comes in response to a recent surge in international students that we've been witnessing over the last few years. 
And uh, Immigration Minister Mark Miller said that it meant it's meant to curb bad actors from taking advantage of high international student tuitions while providing poor education. So really kind of putting the problem into the light. Yeah, their language, their language changed a lot, too, because like he was saying that the students were taking advantage of the system. But I think it's just as much the systems are taking advantage of the students. For right? sure. Like, it's, a, it's a negative feedback loop at yeah. the end of the day. So Premier Doug's, Doug Ford's PC government made public colleges and universities cut tuition by 10% in 2019, then froze tuition at that level and did not provide a corresponding funding increase. So what did they do? They went and started attracting more students that they could charge or were charging 3x the tuition or more, which is international students. So these post-secondary institutions, particularly colleges, started enrolling more and more international students in an effort to recoup that lost revenue. Now, the Ontario government said that it was acting to protect students and improve the integrity of the province's post-secondary education. The challenges stemming from the recent spike in students coming to Canada, including predatory practices by bad actor recruiters, misinformation regarding citizenship and permanent residency, false promises of guaranteed employment, and inadequate housing for students require immediate attention and collaborative action. I mean, that is just a list of a pretty horrible university or college experience to me. The uh, The government measures include a requirement that all colleges and universities have guaranteed uh, have a guarantee that housing options are available for incoming international students. But Green Party of Ontario leader Mike Schreiner said that it will do little. Housing doesn't appear out of thin air, he wrote in a statement. And this is like, I mean, from my perspective, you know, it is a long run solution, right? Just like, like all the solutions yeah, we're getting like proposed. So. And now, so, right? the, and this is where we're going to get to the financing component of it as well, because there were some changes at a federal level of the financing of this, this type of product, but mandating housing without a commitment to help Ontario's universities and colleges pay for it is little more than smoke and mirrors. And they go on to say that there's, there's other criti- critiques here from other politicians. It's clear that the government would rather see post-secondary institutions close than cough up the investments needed to keep them afloat. I mean, we're going to go through it because we're going to break down a little bit of the numbers on what an apartment looks like in Vancouver versus at UBC. Yeah, fascinating. And like, it's not like, look, providing student residents, like, do you remember how much you paid for res when you were in Guelph, right? Like, I remember because I got kicked out, I got my second semester back because I hadn't paid it yet or whatever. How much was that? I have no idea. Like, oh, it was like, it would have been double, easily double what I would have been paying on a per bedroom race, per bedroom rate really so, okay because i think i was paying like 600 bucks a month back then for for my like for second, sharing third year no, yeah. yeah yeah second third year the houses we had yeah yeah so i think i had a single and it was i think i want to say it was like 800 bucks or 900 bucks wow. and, and rooms at that point were four four yeah i mean we, nah, yeah i mean we paid 600 we had a full awesome house like right. it was it was expensive at the yeah. time yeah so so anyway while i like while i think it they're probably not wrong in that criticism. It also, I don't know if it necessarily needs investment from the province. I think that we just need to push these or push these institutions to build housing and make the business case make, make sense. Like, you know, we're hearing about Queens. I think you have some stuff in here about oh, Queens, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, look, like some of these institutions need the revenue. So, yeah. Um, so, it goes on to say that the government will work closely with the sector to reach an outcome that provides stability and certainty for post-secondary institutions and students alike with uh, further details to be announced in uh, in about a month's time from from when this episode is being recorded. So the end of February. 
the Ontario Confederation of University Faculty Association said that the announcement misses the mark by coming with no funding. So they got their hands out saying, please, yeah. we need this stuff. Well, I mean, it's we can't it, just, you know, announcements don't pay the bills here. It is tough though. Like it's hard for a, like at scale to house. So if you have, I think we have 800,000 international students in Canada, like 2% of Canada's population is international students right now. I think if half of those are 51% of them we know are in Ontario, right? So half of them, so 400,000 people, like to house 400,000 people is like, in the billions of dollars, right? It's, it's not a, like it's a, it's a city. Yeah, it's a it's a mid tier city. Yeah, so it's not like a the province of Ontario could just like write a check. Like I think that people like they're calling it funding, but it's not like funding. Like it, the only way to do that is either through bonds or a loan, and and so and which is the federal government's. Like I don't know if the province actually had like I kind of get that they don't. I don't know if they actually understand like how the and most politicians don't. I guess understand how the capital stack for. A built like building kind of something products, works, yeah. right? Like even university is going to get a construction loan to build something. They're not like nobody's just paying cash. You know what I mean? So it's not, and it's like, <laughs> and it's not like the province could do that. Like it's so much money that nobody can just write a fifteen billion dollar check, right? Like, well, it's not just the money. It's the the, the public uh, the public sector doesn't have the the resources, in my opinion, to do this, right? Like they need to figure out funding through again a creative capital stack and then rely on the private sector to help implement it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll get to it because the, the federal government has been doing some work on on that. They announced it after this. On the 29th, they made an announcement about it, which we'll get to later in the in the episode. But Dunlop also announced a provincial review of programs offered by post-secondary institutions that have a significant amount of international students to ensure the uh, programs are appropriate quality and meet labor market needs. I like that one. I do. I think, you know, I mean, Hopefully you and I talked about trades. Yeah, seriously. We've been, <laughs> we've been talking about it, like the need for people to to get into skilled trades in, in Ontario and Canada. You know, I think the other thing is a lot of students are d- becoming disappointed because mo- most would like most would imagine that a student comes here, they get an education, their objective is to get permanent residence and and a lot of them are being sold that they're or being not sold but told that that, that that's the outcome. That that's that's right, like that's what's going to happen. But what happens is the degree that they get is is not good enough, and Ontario employers have blacklisted some of these strip colleges, and so they don't get a good enough job when they finish school, and then they can't qualify for CRS, which is PR, the yeah. permanent residency, and the negative feedback loop continues. Yeah, yeah, and so so I do like that that like all of these things are like it's like. We're just realizing that we should match immigration to housing starts and thought. we should match the study permit uh, or educational types, program types to what the labor market is demanding. Like, are we just getting here? I guess. Basic anyway, I economics, know. you'd think, but hey. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the federal announcement included uh, barring students in schools that follow private public model from assessing postgraduate work permits, Ontario colleges and universities have come out against the federal government's move to cap international student visas, visa, sorry, because in a 2022 report from Ontario's Auditor General, it said that the province's schools have become increasingly dependent on tuition fees from international students. So let's go off on a quick tangent here, Dan, for a crazy story. Now, you mentioned this earlier. Queen's University, 
prestigious. This is the funniest. It is. A, it is the funniest part. No offense to Queens, but Queens students were like, you know, they were like the the rich kids. Yeah, I mean, I like, remember going to, to Queens. hear that to hear that Queens has no money. Is yeah, I mean, like you ironic. go to Queens, it looks it looks like you know it's an, it's not Ivy, brutalist it's an Ivy buildings like, well, No, isn't it? No, no it's not. Ivy. No. no. It that's looks, only in the U.S. It, well, no, Western. Western's an Ivy League. No, that's Sir Richard Ivy Business School. Right. You're going to okay. want to cut that from the episode. Yeah, sir. can we cut this editor that doesn't exist? So, I mean, it, it's prestigious re- regardless, right? You go to Queens. Yeah, only McGill is an Ivy League school. Canada's Harvard is Canada's McGill, they call it. There we go. Yeah. Okay, well. There are no much. Ivy League schools in Canada, by the way, and we are aware of that. Well, Nick wasn't, but he is now. Yes, so, thank you. Live okay. live learning here on the podcast. Yeah. See, I learn something every time we do these too. Yeah. So Queens, again, prestigious university that recently made the news, but not in the way that you may imagine. Here's one of the many headlines that came out about Queens recently. Queens could go under without cuts to to courses, and that is from the National Post. Now, Dan, I pulled a few excerpts from this article. Can you read these quotations, please? Sure. So it says, Queens has instituted a hiring freeze for faculty and staff and is facing a deficit in June projected to be around $50 The Faculty of Arts and Sciences bears the brunt of that, made worse by fewer international students, a provincial tuition freeze, inflation, and fewer retirements than predicted. Gravy train's ending for this country right now, man. It really is. Like Things are kind of coming down. Let's just take those out piece by piece. So international students, fewer of them. Okay, well, they're directly reliant on tuitions because they're a school and that's their customer. So that's not good. Provincial tuition freeze, again, Tuition, frozen, not good. Inflation, Queens is feeling it just like everybody else. And fewer retirements, well, that's because the people that were looking to retire are also dealing with inflation and everything else. And they're like, you know what? I could probably use a couple more years here, milk this gravy train before it entirely runs out. Yeah, that or, and or, because I think a lot of public sector is dealing with this like the work remote is like very easy to blend yeah, in like a semi-retirement or a lot of like that quiet quitting and stuff like yeah. that right so yeah and a lot of you're people not, have tenure a, yeah. right so you're not just being like hey yeah why retire professor you have yeah. worked two hours this yeah. week yeah. we need more out of you yeah so the next one says i am concerned about the people that you've described the adjuncts and other people as you put it in precarious positions but i'm concerned about the survival of this institution because unless we sort it out, we will go under Queen's Provost Matthew Evans. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that would not be good for Canada's economy if one of our most no. prestigious schools. No. Go, yeah. So Evans told faculty and staff that 85% of the university's operating budget is from tuition and operating grants, both of which depend on student numbers. So, let's, so. I think we Queen's needs to lever up and build some student housing. And sounds like it. You know, yeah. like Axon, who we had on the show, yeah. David. Based does, on Queen's. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of yeah, thousands of, of student rental yeah. units. The opportunity was there, right? Yeah, um, but they they got they they have been in the wrong business for their business, and now all of a sudden, it the university is looking at housing. It, you know, it goes back to that uh, the McDonald's principle, right? You're in the wrong business. You're not yeah. in the business of hamburgers. You're in the business of real estate. Yeah. No one knows, but everyone should be in the business of real estate, I sure. guess. I mean, and right, you're right, Dan. I mean, if Queens had figured this out, they'd be in a different positions because, you know, Queens is a staple as far as universities go, right? I mean, it is, it doesn't, it's not Ivy League, but it's got Ivy growing on buildings on the campus. <laughs> that, right? That's what it's all about. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I was That's what you meant. I mean, it's been around for over 180 years and 
you know, back in 1841, did they think the student, the, you know, international students would be a reason for this thing to go under? It's a legacy school, the beautiful campus and Kingston itself, beautiful city. It relies heavily on the student population to, to support that local economy. I mean, they have a population of over 30,000 students. Yeah. I mean, it does like I have some too big to fail vibes, like something's going to happen. They're not here. letting Queens like, go under. Right. But I can't but, see it, but, but like, it is the a fact reflection. That openly talking about it is scary. That is interesting actually that it's like not some kind of thing that's just like a rumor in the back. It's like, this is in the news. And, um, almost a cry for help, right? Like it's, yeah, they're almost like calling the bluff of like, Hey, uh, too big to fail over here. Like yeah. come fix it. It'd be a shame <laughs> yeah. if someone came and bailed us out. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a sign from my perspective when you're seeing this and seeing, cause all of these institutions pay interest rates, right? Like they do, they all pay, they all, they're all subject debt. to inflation. Yeah. They're all subject to interest and rates. The, and, yeah, and, the, and so I think when you think about like everyone just thinks the economy, like Enbridge is a good example. Enbridge just laid off 650 people because they're feeling the crunch of the modern economy. I don't know how. I'm surprised they just don't put those employees' wages on my bill because they seem to put everything else on my Enbridge bill. But it's almost like Bell and Rogers yeah. as well. It's like, how do you guys have problems? Yeah. Like, yeah. There's only two options in Canada. But, but this is, and I think, I really do, I think that this is like, there's just been a lot of mismanagement in the Canadian economy. Like, I think we have the most, the most unprofitable companies in the world. Yeah, Chuck was just telling us that, or you were, you and Chuck I, were talking I, about that last night. Yeah, where... I, I cited the data point, but then it ended up being Chuck was like, it's because of there's a lot of like people just writing down their taxes because yeah. we're a high tax, but it's also a lot of commodities companies, mining, mining companies and, that show losses on yeah, paper. Yeah, yeah, but still, I mean, that number came in at over sixty percent of of Canadian businesses being non profitable. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, brutal. Yeah. So yeah, so I guess you're telling me that students are reliant upon students to be successful. With this Queens, yes, yeah. I mean, who would have, uh, who would have thought? And so, anyway, it's pretty clear when you look at the numbers. Um, some of the data we're about to read after this other piece here is is a little bit crazy. But I think the question, like, is if this whole shakeup is happening, what does it mean for student rental landlords? Just quickly, because I know we're not going to go all in on the on the student rental piece. Yeah, so I mean, landlords are probably hoping that these colleges and universities start maybe making offers on their portfolios because a lot of the student rental operators that I know they don't just have you know you don't have one student rental that's that's your asset class that that's your investment thesis you've built out the power team and the systems around that business to support it and I mean if you're an Ontario student rental landlord it may be worth considering approaching the colleges to sell your properties instead of competing with them or approach us and we'll get you on Dan's email campaign well I don't know nobody's responded to me yet (laughs) they're too busy uh trying not to go bankrupt yeah seriously yeah, I mean, like, I, and I have, I, I approached all of these colleges directly to see, number one, if they're willing to or looking to, to, I mean, that's the most agile supply from my perspective. And I were to be, if I were Buy to guess and be supply. like, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. existing supply already used for that purpose. And then even go back and have, as you said, have those, have those operators. Yeah. Um, you know, there could be VTBs in place. There could yeah. be rent to owns in place. Yeah. Could, I mean, the there's probably could. two, that's probably two, two, like, uh, sophisticated not sophisticated but like it's not it just wouldn't make the most sense like they're they're gonna get like they could just get a blanket loan buy up everything in yeah. like in yeah. kingston like they could do that they're capable of doing that and then they're getting then oh now all of a sudden you're investing like now it's easy to, for somebody to be like hey do you want to bail out because you have assets now not just a, a 50 million dollar deficit but you know my my thought is at the same time they're also going to have to start offloading taking a lot of that housing stock because that like Kingston's a good example. A bunch of old, like mansions, right, that are cut up into into um, 
multiple rooms for students. And some of them are really rough, to be honest with you. Um, some are fine, but you know, that those are all houses that could eventually be occupied by families and that student rental supply is competing with housing for families. So they, they, you know, they buy a bunch today, they have the agile supply, they're solving the problem that they're being asked to deal with by the province, colleges and universities that are being asked to deal with this by the province. And then in the, at in the same time, they're also creating new supply by building through some of the fu- funding programs that we're describing, start bringing that online, moving people over, moving all the students over and freeing up that existing supply. Cause like, I mean, student rentals is like very, it's, it's they're, they're dorms, right. In a lot of cases, like they don't need to all be apartments and stuff like that. So when they're, when they're built in that way, it's like, it's very purpose built. Right. And houses, sh- you know, it's not, it's the least efficient use of a house to mm-hmm. cut it up into so many rooms. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. anyway, the the potential viable strategy to navigate the challenge, challenging landscape of student housing market in light of the recent policy changes is probably to think about what these institutions are going to do. Do you want to do you want to start me off here with this data from because is it so that we're talking about universities, but colleges are really where we're seeing some of the crazy crazy yeah. stuff happen. So yeah. so give me this data on student enrollment in colleges. So. Ontario colleges specifically increased their international enrollments by, on average, 240% in just seven years. Talk about returns uh, and built almost no new residence homes. So again, across the, I don't know, 25 to 20, let's say, colleges here that will get into growth percentages, on an average, 240% and not no new residences almost. So yeah, I think it was like 7% increase in housing supply. So, okay. Yeah. So not so, 240%. So call it 233% increase yeah. with no houses then. So the most ridiculous ones on the list are, and I'll start us off with the two ones that are just astronomical. Loyalist College between 2014 to 2020 or 2014 to 2015 and then 2021 to 2022, the change in growth uh, represented as a percentage Loyalist College grew by 4,671%. 4,671%. You forgot Northern College, which grew from zero to 3,000 3, um, international students for uh, infinite growth percentage. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. Okay. I didn't even. I, I thought that was just kind yeah, of a, a blank error. one there. Oh, yeah. Infinite. Yeah. Infinite. So from zero. To Try throwing that in your model. Geez. We expect our enrollment to grow by infinity. Then, yeah, What's the, next there? The next uh, just under 4,000. Sioux College at uh, 3,390%. 3,990%. 990 Almost 4,000%. And then hit us with the, the next three that make up the, the craziness on the list here, Dan. And yeah, then- so Canador College grew from 336 international students to over 6,000 international students for a growth of 1,700%. Conestoga College grew from 763 to 12,000 international students for a growth of 1,500%. And St. Clair College grew at just over 1,000%. So, I mean, I those are just like not, not really in line real with numbers. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just you're bound to get to a consequence and, and – we're at the consequence. But like it's, and I feel like anytime you see, like, again, you know, that there's that old Lil Wayne quote, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. 
So I moved out of my condo and into the bank vault. Now that's <laughs> the first part of that is numbers don't lie. Okay. So when you start and people keep track of this, you don't just randomly be like, oh, I think there's a couple more students here than, than the last couple of years. When you grow by something in the thousands of percent and there's nothing being done on the other side of that to, to support that growth. Like we're not talking about like Facebook users here. Okay. We're not talking about like, oh, like Uber has grown from no one using the rideshare program to like, you know, thousands of people use. This isn't a tech stock or a tech platform. These are human beings that are coming here to, you know, go through the post-secondary education process and don't have anywhere to live. They'll, you know, you can't grow almost 5,000% and not build any homes and expect everything to be okay. Yeah. No, and and I think that they're really seeing the politi- political consequences now. I mean, it's all anyone's been talking about over the last little bit. It's all policymakers are trying to solve for over the last little bit. I mean, in the last week, we saw three different policies, two from the Fed and one from the province to try and fix this problem. Yeah. And and had they had they been thoughtful about doing it, like I don't even care if you if you grow. I I'm of the camp that immigration is necessary to grow the Canadian economy and for sure and po- and this type of population growth. I mean, literally, StatCan came out today saying that the birth rate in Canada is the lowest it's ever been. So we obviously need. And yet we're still growing. If we want to keep entitlements up, and if we want to have be able to to have baby boomers retire, we need people to be contributing to that system and taking care of them, part, participating in the economy and paying into pensions. And, and the, you know, it's, it's, that's the reality, but there's a way to do it. And like you said, numbers don't lie. The math just has to work. So anyway. Yeah. So, okay. So absolutely wild stats there. Now, again, another little wild piece of information here from a friend of the show and the guy that we write the newsletter with PH floor, go follow him on Twitter. If you don't already do that, Dan, you brought this up as a teaser earlier. Yeah. Vancouver rentals versus UBC rentals. Walk us through this little Twitter thread here. Yeah. So he says, let's take Vancouver as an example to see how lucrative student housing can be. So rents are super high in Vancouver. According to Zumper, median rents are $3,000 a month or 54% above the national average. And CMH actually just came out with their report, which we're going to do an episode on in a couple of weeks. Uh, or in the next couple of weeks, we'll record it probably in the next couple of days here. Um, so average price per square foot, $4.03. So rent rent per square foot, 4 bucks. Now let's compare that to UBC student housing on campus and say the rates they charge. Highlighted are the rent prices for nano suites and studios and the approximate square feet of those units. Table at the bottom shows the rent premium UBC student housing commands. So the nano suite is $5.31 or 32% higher than the alternative um, apartment. And the studio suite is $6.09 per square foot or 51% above the rents per square foot of a a regular unit in in Vancouver. Yeah, so I mean, this is just absolutely insane because the Nano Studio is 145 square feet. Okay, 100. Yeah, I mean, that's a bedroom. It's literally yeah, but that it's a bedroom, but it also has a kitchenette in it. It has a three piece bathroom in it, and it has a convertible desk slash bed, and it has a bookshelf. Don't forget about that bookshelf. That's a full. That's an expensive bookshelf because that's like that must take up two, three square feet right there. Seriously, yeah, you're paying uh, twelve bucks a month for that thing to sit there. <laughs> better, you better be reading it, okay? <laughs> the studio, and take it from a guy who once lived in a studio apartment. Studios are small. This is a lot smaller than a studio apartment. This studio is two hundred and fifteen square feet. 
And um, we don't have a bookshelf in here too expensive. We do have a dresser that, that one takes also up a valuable the, five to seven square feet. The studio, oh, it does have like a little dinette too. That's where the upgrade in the studio. But, you know, it's interesting because when I, I used to get chirped because I had a kitchen and a ba- like bathroom. Actually, my current house has a bathroom off of a kitchen, which I would like to change. But this is a very deliberately designed bathroom off of a kitchen kind of thing. Like you could, I mean, you could probably be using the toilet and the sink at the same time. Almost, almost. yeah. If it depends if you, know, especially like you if you play basketball, you got long arms. You're yeah. just, <laughs> They're looking pretty close there. Man, just um, crazy to see this. I mean, I, I mean, again, this this is just shocking to see how, how expensive this stuff is. So, And the conclusion that he put in the Twitter thread was, you know, get into the business of, of building student housing. Like, yeah. why aren't they like, seriously, like the, you know, I, I don't have a ton of faith in public private institutions or, or public institutions to build things cost effectively. And so they're probably bound to mess it up and not make it a profitable venture in some way. Well, the, the some way is overpaying for construction because I mean, Altus uh, construction cost guide came out and, you know, the, if you look at pub, the private sector uh, per square foot cost versus the public sector per square foot cost, it's just hilarious, right? It's like they just overpay because like they don't know really what, yeah. like they're not experts in that field yeah. or what, I don't know, or the, the contractors know that, you know. I'm sure like, there's, there's probably some market funny up 10% business going boys. on. Market it's up the 20%, government. yeah. So anyway, the point being that if they do it right, they could just, they could actually turn this into revenue generation and maybe we wouldn't have to close down Queens because they become a student <laughs> rental provider. <laughs> Queens homecoming is too fun to close it down. We yeah, got to keep that going. Seriously. Okay. So this next piece is, is, uh, is from one of my favorite government agencies here, the financial consumer agency of Canada, otherwise known as FACAC. Yeah. Um, they Good put afternoon. out some uh, great information for students that are looking to maybe plan their budget and help their budget. And uh, it's titled managing your budget as a student. So let's take a look at what the information they have here covers as a, and this is for prospective students to keep in mind. And it says cost to include in your budget. And we'll just rip through this quickly, Dan, because I want to get to the last piece on, on some of the new legislation and funding for this stuff. But I just thought this was funny and I wanted to include it because there's, there's such a blatant student housing crisis. And then of course we got FACAC over here putting out essentially, Hey guys, don't forget about tuition fees. This will include your, uh, the school you attend, your residency, the province or territory. Yeah, that's really helpful. I what's, the, what's the next one I on here? I would have forgot to pay my student fees. Well, this says you have to pay to a student union, uh, books, other course materials, living expenses. I mean, the living expenses one is, this stuff is interesting when it comes to international students because, you know, assuming that this is your first time in Canada, you're coming here to study, you now all of a sudden are like, I have no idea. Like, you know, many are coming from places where the cost of living is far cheaper. And so before they, they said, you need to prove that you have $10,000 in yeah. living expenses to come to get a, a student visa to come to Canada. They increased that by uh, over a hundred percent, I believe. Yeah. I think it's 20 something oh, yeah, 20, thousand, 20, just over 21, just 22 yeah. or something. Yeah. Anyway, it's over 20 grand now, which, which still is like, okay, you, yeah. you might have one year worth of just living, ex- but, just rent. Yeah. But it's like, you know, like I get that because Students are, were literally coming here and they'd be like, oh, wow, I can't afford anything. Yeah. Like I have 10 grand in my pocket and I'd be lucky if I make it through the first year of school. And it was obviously creating big problems. You're seeing 10 cities of students. Like imagine being an international student coming to Canada, wanting to pursue, you know, higher education in another country and having to live in a 
tent in a in a park because and and because like look there's a bit a degree of buyer beware to this right caveat emptor a degree of that but if the government's saying like hey here are our requirements and they're kind of setting out recommendations i mean people trust that and then come here and are very disappointed and I mean, end up in a bad situation. Yeah. I mean, if the advice they're giving is, hey, living off campus, you may choose to live off campus rather than residence. You may choose to live in a tent off campus at this so point, right? Up. Like, And this could be living with Man, roommates. There was one. So there was one happened in uh, in North Bay. And, and do you remember this one? Yeah, so there was this yeah. couple living in a tent and then the university or the college like clapped back and they were like, oh, there's just like a publicity stunt or whatever. And it was back and forth on, on like the media. Cause the college was like saying it was, it's like, I mean, the fact that it, even if it was, which I don't think it was a publicity stunt, even if it was a, like the fact that people took it seriously and was like, it got attention as believable publicity stunt says enough, I think about the situation. <laughs> so. I think so too. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the FACOC stuff goes on to just be like, you know, for example, a small town in Nova Scotia may be a lot less more expensive than a uh, rental in downtown Toronto. Remember to consider food costs and heat and, you know, it, the, the resources being provided for these students, right? Like don't forget entertainment costs and consider transportation. It's just, it's just so basic and, and almost ridiculous that, uh, you know, it, it's like, here's a list of like the standard things that, that are going to cost you money in Canada, likely everywhere else. Um, and we're not going to do anything other than tell you this. Now, that aside, let's move on to the final piece here, Dan, and, and yeah. get this in here quickly, because this is this is an important piece. Yeah. So so the universities um, and this is where this new policy comes into place, but the universities, uh, this is in November of last year, they, after the fall economic statement was released, they basically lobbied, publicly lobbied the government. So if you go to univcan.ca, Canadian universities, it's like their association, let's call it. They released this statement saying, oh, the federal government outlined two key new investments in housing, $15 billion in new loan funding to the apartment loan construction program, which was the other CMHC financing for uh, purpose-built rentals. So let me try and describe this quickly. So MLI Select is mortgage loan insurance. So that's where banks lend the money, but CMHC insures them. MLI stands for mortgage loan insurance. And basically CMHC buys those loans off of the banks and sells them off as Canada mortgage bonds. The uh, this, this program is actually direct money that is lent from this. And I know a lot of people have had success with this. It used to be called RCFI. I can't remember what RCFI stood for. I will tell you in a second. But anyway... Then they, and and so this is, it's a different program, but you can still apply through CMHC. So um, $15 billion towards that, which has now been changed. The name has been changed to the Apartment Construction Loan Program. Um, and they said it, it does not explicitly allow Canadian universities to be collaborators in solving our housing crisis. Universities are willing partners to the federal government, provinces, municipalities, and private not-for-profit housing providers in working to address housing affordability and supply issues. While I, I don't, I don't know whether or not I like, think that that's true because they could have done this profitably as a like through a private route anyway they're saying they need they've been calling on the government to take three major recommendations on housing incentivize building with low cost financing which is what this is des- describing expand eligibility for the national housing strategy to include post secondary institutions and increase the supply of affordable housing in communities across the country so give me the first one here incentivize building with low cost financing yeah, it goes to say that universities are facing challenges with all the stuff we talk about on the show, rising construction, rising borrowing costs, limited funding, and a need for 
way more student housing. They're addressing these issues by building more residents, repurposing existing buildings, and exploring innovative housing options, but they need more support. If universities had affordable financing from the federal government for student housing construction, they could definitely achieve more. So then they go on to say the expand, they're asked about the expanding eligibility for Canada's housing programs. They said that the national housing strategy in 2017 was aimed to reduce homelessness and support community housing. However, after six years, the strategy no longer meets the diverse housing needs of Canadians. I feel like everyone is just going at this government right now. It's crazy. Like, you know, I mean, I think that universities typically were a little bit more supportive of current administration, but apparently not. It says currently student housing and retirement homes are not eligible for government programs like the RCFI program, a rental construction financing initiative program is what it stands for. Allowing the use of these funds would provide more students with safe, affordable, and convenient housing options. By expanding eligibility for the national housing strategy programs and providing low-cost financing, universities can quickly and efficiently address student housing concerns. However, the overall shortage of affordable housing in communities across Canada needs a broader solution. Universities play a vital role in their communities, creating jobs, stimulating a local economy, and providing essential services. They urged the federal government to collaborate closely with post-secondary institutions to address Canada's housing affordability crisis together. So that's the shot. What was the chaser, Nick? Yeah, so the (laughs) follow-up shot in the chaser, I like it. So the follow-up to the news release. We're just going to university style with the analogies. I love it, yeah. I didn't take any shots. Let's shotgun this uh, this last piece here, um, (laughs) get it over with. uh, So unlocking funding for student housing, and this literally came out, we'll timestamp this as This came out two days ago, January 29th of 2024 from the Department of Finance. It says as part of Canada's economic plan, the government announced further action to build more homes faster by supporting that one before. I think that's recycled a couple times here. That's not a Nikola Rindrill. I'm going to come up with something way better than that. (laughs) Um, Building more homes faster by supporting construction of student housing. Then it goes on to pump Canada's tires and say, we've got a bunch of great learning institutions here. And they're talking about the strip mill colleges. Yeah, of course. Right. Um, Then it gets to say to help fix this, the government of Canada will be offering low cost loans to build more student housing on and off campus by reforming the apartment construction loan program. We will help more students find housing they can afford close to where they need to study and help to ensure that those homes are more available for families who live in the same communities year round. So essentially the same thing everyone else is saying, we need more homes, we need financial products to get there, we need labor to get there, we need construction costs to go down to get there and that's pretty much it. So there's a lot at play with student housing and and Dan, maybe this will be great for when we do the the kind of student housing investing episode in a couple of weeks. We can see where we are updates wise on on this legislation. And I'm gonna uh, get a I'm gonna get a college president on the show. Let's got let's target Queens, man. And, yeah, and I'm gonna force them to buy properties off of <laughs> yeah. our audience on the show. Yeah, and if any uh we I know we've got a bunch of people that listen um that are student rental investors. You got any stories, you got an opinion on this, reach out to the podcast, yeah. throw us an email and we'd love to kind of opine on your opinion or your situation on the podcast. That, uh, that would make for some great content. So until then, hope you got a ton of value out of this and uh, and we're able to identify some trends as to what we're talking about and some opportunities because that's why we do this. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. 
license number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.